Okay, good morning. Hope you all are doing well this morning. Be good, awake. Good. Let's uh, take just a moment and uh, again come before the Father and pray. And uh, hope open our hearts and minds to His Spirit and His Word. Let's pray. Father, we really are just so thankful that, uh, that we have been touched by Your grace and we have been uh, filled with Your Spirit that You pour out Your love in us and toward us moment by moment. And Father, we just want to become more aware of really how great your love is for us. Uh, We want to walk more in your power and to be led more by your spirit. We ask this morning as we turn to your word that you truly would speak to us, uh, that you would speak to us from your word and through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would give us a heart to hear what you have to say to us uh, specifically as individuals as well as to a community and fellowship of believers who who meet together as an assembly, as your holy temple. And we just commit this time now and ask that you would meet uh, meet each one of us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this morning we are going to begin a uh, two-sermon series, a doubleheader. This Sunday and next Sunday, uh, we're going to pick up with a theme that we looked at uh, a little bit last week at the end of 1 Corinthians Uh, the subject of giving, and especially uh, because of the nature of of our business, uh, the reason many of you are here, uh, we want to look at it from the perspective of of raising funds. uh, Many of us are here either living as faith missionaries where we have to raise our own support and we month by month trust in uh, people donating somewhere, uh, to make it possible for us to be here. Or you may be involved in ministries or ministries or organizations, NGOs, where uh, the ongoing operation of your ministry depends on people giving. And uh, the question you know, becomes, you know, is there such a thing as spiritual fundraising? You know, is it, is it, can you say that word? Like, can you be a Christian and be a fundraiser? Is it, or is it something that only pagans do, you know? We'll leave it to Jerry Lewis. Um, Whether it's in our own ministry or for our own organizations, the reality is that ministry costs something. Okay, No matter what you're doing, no matter what it is, it probably won't happen or go very far without money. And money is not the most important thing, but it certainly is one of the things that makes ministry happen. And uh, it certainly helps with things like eating, I personally am very fond of it. I've tried to make a habit of it, and I found that money is very helpful to facilitate that habit, uh, as well as things like rent and electricity. Friday at our house, uh, we had all kinds of electrical problems. My house was like invaded with electrical demons, and uh, all night long I didn't have electricity, and the next day we got it all fixed, and I was thinking, electricity is a good thing. And, uh, and it made me kind of reaffirm my commitment to pay my electric bill monthly. And uh, I decided that's a good thing. Well, when it comes to this whole idea of uh, raising support, raising funds, getting money, there are two broad extremes. Uh, the one extreme would be the kind of televangelist extreme, uh, the guys that are you know, on TV constantly asking for money. I actually had the opportunity way a very, very long time ago to work for one of these people. Uh, I won't mention his name. I doubt that any of you would know him, but at the time he was very big on the radio, not television. Had a listening audience of several million around the world. And um, I was unemployed at the time and, and very desperate. And so I took this job, not really believing a lot in his ministry, but just needing a job. And. Uh, this two-hour radio program, easily an hour of it, was, was fundraising. And it was very, very manipulative, very uh, guilt-driven. Basically, the message was, 
You know, there are people banging going to hell, and if you don't send money in right now, they're going to die right now. It's going to be all your fault. And uh, he would do that for about an hour, ranting and raving and, and uh, making people feel guilty. And then at the end would say, and if you give today, we'll send you a free copy of my new book. You know, and uh, very effective. Raised millions of dollars every year. Had a, an annual budget of, I think, six to ten million dollars annually. And it works well. And this guy was good at it. And that's kind of one extreme. Um, and sometimes we think that that option, uh, you know, anytime we ask for money or anytime we specifically say and put out a letter saying we need money or we're raising support, we might feel like we're kind of thrown into that category. Like we're one of those just money-hungry televangelists who's always trying to manipulate and con people out of money. Um, then there's the other extreme, who's best embodied by George Muller uh, of Bristol. And I, I just read one of his biographies. Um, the, the guy was crazy. Uh, he, he took it to the other extreme to such an extent that he refused, absolutely refused, to ever, ever ask for anything. In fact, he took it to such an extreme that he wouldn't even do anything that might suggest he was asking for money. The only correspondence he sent out was once a year he would send out an annual report to give praise for how God had provided for their orphanages. And he, in his lifetime, supported thousands of orphans in, in uh, London, uh, sent Bibles and tracts all over Europe, did a lot of work, supported foreign missions. He never asked for money. And in fact, it was, he was so crazy and so determined about this that if he thought his annual report, if his, if his annual report came, I think that normally was in June, May or June, if they were broke and didn't have any money, he wouldn't send out the report because he didn't want it to look like on the report that, well, see, we're out of money, we need you to give. So at the times when he most desperately needed to send out the report, he refused. And sometimes he would go almost a whole year until they actually had money, and then he would send out the report to show that he, didn't, you know, he wasn't asking for money. Um, very noble, and we'll talk a little bit more about George Miller because he really has some good qualities. And, um, but the, you know, to take that approach, really, you have to be pretty much insane. And uh, it's very extreme. And he lived this in a very unique way, and he felt a very unique calling of God to do this because he wanted everything not to be so much about supporting orphans or doing ministry, but he wanted his life to be a witness and evidence that God could supply without any help from or prodding from men, that we could live a life of absolute faith where we just trust God and God will just supply. And that's how he lived. And that is a good way to live, but it's not necessarily mandated for all of us. Uh, I don't believe the Bible teaches that anybody living on support needs to go that path. Now, if you choose to go that path, I'll pray for you. You'll need it. And uh, it's, there's a lot of good lessons from, from him that we can learn. But uh, that's also kind of an extreme. And really what we want to ask is, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about us, our money, our giving, our raising support, about asking other people to give? And uh, the most clear and concise passage that details this is in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And um, interestingly, there is in Scripture a very clear biblical model of fundraising. And the person who really modeled it, lived it out, was actually the Apostle Paul. He was a very effective fundraiser. Uh, you would like to have this guy around to raise money for your organization because he knew how to do it well. And he did it in a way that was balanced, in a way that was biblical, in a way that in the end ultimately brought honor and glory to God, which was the heart of George Miller. Uh, maybe not so much the heart of the televangelists, I don't know. We'll leave it up to them and God. Um, Paul raised funds on three levels. First of all, he supported his own ministry. And he went all over the world, all over the Roman world, planting churches. It cost something. A lot of it he funded himself through as a tent maker and uh, was, was employed, paving his, uh, making his own living. But that's not all. He also uh, raised support. He doesn't talk about it a lot, but if you look through his letters, it's very clear that he uh, gained support and got support from many of the churches that he planted. And he... Uh, was, was very willing to, to receive support from them and at times to encourage that. Secondly, he 
needed to raise and encourage support for those he left behind as leaders in those churches, as elders, pastors, teachers, leaders, and in First uh, Timothy and in, in uh, First Corinthians and other passages, he builds a case that it's good to support those who, who teach well, who are leaders well, who have devoted themselves to full-time ministry on behalf of the church, and he raises funds for them. But then uh, his most aggressive uh, fundraising campaign was to provide an offering to relieve the poverty in Jerusalem. So he was focused not only about his own mission and about the health of the church, but he really saw the importance of, of churches reaching out and actively, by faith and by their actions, giving uh, to support and help those in need. And especially, Paul was burdened for the need and poverty in Jerusalem. And there were some famines in Jerusalem, there were some hardships. Uh, there was a real problem because Jerusalem was primarily in that day Jewish. Uh, it was before the Muslims had taken over and the Crusades and all that, so it was very Jewish. There was the temple, and um, there was kind of a problem in that when you became a Christian, the Jews were real, not real fond of that. And so the, the Jews had a great system of benevolence, uh, of giving and supporting those in need through the synagogues. Uh, when you became a Christian, pretty much that ended. And they decided, you want Jesus, you're on your own, we're not helping you out. Okay, please move. Red car. Uh, compact red car. Gong Long. Gong Long. 8549. We have a little red car. It's parked in a place that needs to be moved. Anybody have a little red car? Okay. Um, so, so there was great need in Jerusalem, and Paul set himself to, to uh, an actually two or three year campaign to raise funds for them. And in 1 Corinthians, he alludes to, in chapter 16, we looked at that last week, he says, you know, don't wait till I get there to take this offering. You need to be weekly setting aside and preparing and planning for this offering. And it was very important to Paul. And in Romans, he talks about it. We see him talking about it in Acts. Uh, throughout the New Testament, there's this, this thread of this project that Paul is dealing with. Well, uh, between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, at least one year had gone by, possibly more. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul must address the issue again because the Corinthians apparently were not taking it very seriously. And so Paul is not going to be passive about this. He's not going to take the George Mueller approach and just pray. He goes for them. And he goes to them, and he actually sends Titus along. He sends some really big guys with dark glasses who look really mean as Titus's traveling companions, and he, he persuades them to give. And apparently it worked because later he came and collected the money, and we know that the churches from Macedonia and Achaia, which would have been Corinth, gave generously to this project. So what did Paul do that was so effective? Okay, this is the magic words. This is what we want to know. How do we get people to let go of their money and, and support our ministries and support what we're doing so that we can fulfill our visions. You have visions to see God do great things, but it must be funded. And part of our job is to pray for people, to minister, to spread the gospel, but part of it is to see that vision funded. And it is an act of faith, but it also requires on our part uh, encouraging people, persuading people to be invested financially in that vision. And Paul understood that, and he works very hard at it. And so we're going to look, uh, we're going to actually make it very far. There's so much here, and I encourage you to really study this, especially if you're a person who has a responsibility to do this. Now, you may be sitting here this morning going, well, I don't have to raise money. I'm 13 years old. My parents just give it to me. Well, you should be very thankful, okay? Count the days, because pretty soon, you know, it ain't going to happen. Um, Maybe you're not here as a supported missionary. Maybe you're here with other kind of business. This also has application for you because if you're not raising money and you're not needing to raise support, then you fall in a very important category. You are a giver. You are the people we want to hit up, see, for money. And all of us, as we'll see, need to be uh, not only raising support but participating in the gift of giving. So let's look at this. We're going to just look at the first few verses. Uh, and we may not make it too far next week either, but we'll see what we can do. He says in, in 
Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Now I want to tell you, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done for the churches or through the churches in Macedonia. I just a little geography lesson. Uh, Corinth was at the southern tip of the Greek peninsula. If you were to go up the coast from, from Corinth, the next towns you would, you would hit would be Philippi, Berea, and Thessalonica. And they made up this region or this district known as Macedonia. So they were their neighbors to the north. Uh, though they have been going through much trouble and hard times, their wonderful joy and deep poverty have overflowed into rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it of their own free will. They begged us again and again for the gracious privilege of sharing in the gift for the Christians in Jerusalem. Best of all, they went beyond our highest hopes, for their first action was to dedicate themselves to the Lord and to us for whatever God's will might be for them. Okay, Paul starts off, first of all, in his, his uh, trying to persuade and influence the Corinthians by setting before them an example of what godly giving looks like. And I want to do that this morning for us. The, the Macedonians were a great example of what the right kind of giving looks like. Uh, and he really puts them forward as an example. And he says to the Corinthians, I want you guys to just be impressed and amazed at these Macedonians. Because they are exemplary. They are amazing in what God has done in their life and in their gift of giving. Uh, one, of the, one of the most vital things that we can do to help people understand what giving is, uh, is about is to be an example. And to put before them real-life examples of how this works which means, of course, that we ourselves need to be an example and we need to be willing to share other examples of generous, gracious giving. And uh, Paul does that with, with the Macedonians, and they really were a remarkable example. And uh, let's look at, at, uh, at why they were such good givers. Uh, first of all, he says in verse 1, uh, it says here, I want to tell you, I want to show you what God in his kindness has done. Literally it says, I want to show you what God's grace that has, I want to show you God's grace that is, as it has been given in the churches in Macedonia. He said, these churches have experienced a, an amazing working of God's grace in their midst. Uh, you got to understand something about people and their giving. And that is that first and foremost, it is a work of God's grace in their life. Uh, the televangelists who try to con people out of money have learned a way to do it, of picking people's pockets. But that's not what godly giving is about. Godly giving, first and foremost, is to be a work of God's grace in our life. It's to be produced by God's hand, touching our life in such a way that it produces in us, produces in us a heart of generosity, a willingness and a desire to give. It says later on that these people were begging to give. They're going, Paul, please, please don't leave us out. We want to give. How many people know people like that? They come to you, they're saying, please, we want to support you. We want to give to you. Please let us give to you. You're going, no, 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 not really. No, I mean, we love that. We love to hear that. I don't know very many people like that. I have a few. I do have a few. Wouldn't it be great if everybody you knew was like that? If when you went to churches, the churches were saying, oh, please let us support you. Please, we're begging yeah, well, that's the kind of people the Macedonians were. Well, was it something in their water? You know, uh, what happened to these people? Well, what happened was God's grace had been poured out in their life in such a way that it had done an incredible life-transforming work. And Paul says, I want to tell you about this work of grace that's going on in their lives. That's what's causing it. That's what's producing in these people this heart to give. And, uh, and uh, in the next few verses, he explains and outlines a little bit about what that grace was producing in them and what it looked like. Um, it's interesting that he talks here about the word grace, and uh, it's too bad that the New Living didn't translate it that way. Uh, throughout this passage, uh, Paul uses this word grace repeatedly, and he uses it in two ways. One, he uses it to talk about God's gift of grace to us. And in that sense, God's grace is his unmerited favor, his goodness. And it really is his gift to us the gift of salvation, the gift of Christ, the gift of the cross. 
But when Paul talks about their gift, he uses the same word. He says uh, these Macedonians were gracious. They, they gave a gift of grace. And in the Greek, that word can be used either way. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, we studied the spiritual gifts. It's the word charismata. It's grace gifts. And uh, that word can be used in that sense. And all giving is grace. It is God's gift to us. And in turn, our giving ought to be our grace being extended to those that we're supporting and loving and serving and caring about. Um, and here comes one of the first errors in, in, in how we oftentimes approach our support raising. Support raising ought to be, first and foremost, seeing God's grace produce something in people's lives that motivates them to give. All too often, though, we approach it this way. We think people will give because they see a need. And we approach our support raising and our fundraising and our, 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 our efforts in that vein by putting before people our great need. It's interesting, Paul doesn't do that. In fact, uh, in all of the New Testament, we don't find any real clear examples of Paul talking about how destitute and needy the people in Jerusalem were. Uh, it was a known fact that there was need in Jerusalem, but Paul never talks about that. He never bases their, his appeal for them to give based on the need. Um, we need to be very careful that we don't use need as a motivator. And the reality is we oftentimes think that if we put out there this great need, that people are going to be compelled to give and support. You know, if we write in our newsletters, you know, it's been a tough month. Our family's been sharing one piece of bread since the beginning of the month, but we praise God for that piece of bread. You know, hallelujah. But there's a need. And we've, we've got this pressing need. And, you know, the reality is that next month, if you don't give, I, I fear my child will die. You know, and we can paint this picture of this tremendous need where we can talk about, you know, I love the, the, the brochures with the starving children, you know, the little goo you know, oozing out of their eyes and, you know, they have no teeth and they're, they're starving to death. And we put those out there. We think, see, look what these poor children, they're starving and, you know, please, if you don't give, they're going to die. And that's a great tool that's often used. I mean, not a good tool. It's one that's often used to appeal for people to give. That's a very poor motive and reason for giving. And here, there's a couple reasons. First of all, the reality is that everybody thinks they're needy. And I know, and I, the first time, few times I heard this, I was speaking at churches or places in the United States, and I was appealing on the basis of need. And I had been to India, and I had good pictures, you know, of starving children. And uh, I was just horrified when people afterward would come up and say things like, well, I don't see why we should, you know, have to give the people there. You know, we got needy children right here. And uh, people would talk about their own need and how hard life was for them. And I was just going, what is wrong with you people? You talk about your own hardship because you can't go to McDonald's and get, you know, uh, the, the supersized Big Mac. You've got to get the small one. These people are starving to death. But the reality is, everybody sees their own need. And they tend to compare their need with everybody else's. And the reality is they say, well, I have needs, they have needs. Why is their need any more important than my need? And you see, if we base giving on need, uh, which we've done far too often, people say, well, you know, I got bills, I got debts, and I got to pay off the boat and the, you know, the jet ski and the you know, very expensive house. I got needs. You know, I got bills. I'm up to here with the debts. And uh, who's going to take care of me? And if we base giving on, on, on need, People say, well, well, look at me. I need. Who's going to give to me? Uh, secondly, uh, need can be just overwhelming. If we base giving on need, the reality is that there's need everywhere. There is need everywhere. And people, if, they, uh, if we approach them only on the basis of need, it can be overwhelming. And the bottom line, they can feel like, well, I can't begin to make a dent. I can't begin to help. And they just get overwhelmed and decide, I can't do anything, so I'm not even going to try. So need is a very poor motivator. Instead, we need to shift from focusing on need to focusing on God's grace at work in our life. Um, and it's not that we don't mention needs. It's not that it's not okay to say, you know, this is what we're facing. But we need to approach it from the side that people will give because they've experienced God's grace at work in their life. 
They're going to give because they have seen God meet their own needs in His powerful and supernatural ways. And out of gratefulness and thankfulness, they want to give to help others. Uh, It's important for us also to realize that anybody who gives money to you, it is by God's grace. Okay? It is never something we have a right to or uh, that we can demand people to do or expect. It ultimately is an issue of trusting God's goodness to, to bless us, to provide for us, to provide for our ministry needs. And it is ultimately a work of God's grace. People will give and give as long-term partners with you in ministry because God has moved in their life, and that's God's grace at work. We want people to be a part of our ministries, part of our life, part of our teams, who have been moved by God, called by God, to partner with us by giving. And that's a work of God's grace. Um, So that's the first point. Giving is ultimately all about grace. People experiencing grace in their own life and deciding to, to, to put forward that grace in action in their own. Uh, and he goes on and he explains what this work of grace in their life looks like. And for the Macedonians, it really is quite remarkable because he says they've been going through great difficulty and trouble, very hard times, yet their wonderful joy and deep poverty have overflowed in rich generosity. It's an amazing verse. Amazing verse. Um, most people give because they feel like they can afford it. And Paul puts forward this example of a group of people who were giving generously and they definitely could not afford it. Uh, We need to help build models of giving that are not based on our leftover income or resources. That's not a biblical model of what giving is about. We should never give on the basis of, well, we have enough this month, so we'll give out of our surplus what's left over. Throughout Scripture, from the beginning to end, giving is always supposed to be a priority that comes before bills and other needs so that there's always enough because it comes off the top. And when you get your paycheck, whatever it is, uh, you get your allowance. If you're 10, 12, 13 years old, you get your allowance. Uh, You have a choice when you first get that money of what you're going to do with it. Now, regardless of bills, regardless of commitments, regardless of rent, house, electricity bills, You get to decide how that money is going to be spent. And uh, the biblical principle is that God's supposed to get the first cut. And then whatever's left over goes towards those things. Uh, How many of us really live and operate on that principle? Well, apparently the Macedonians did. Because it says that they were people who were experiencing tremendous hardship. In fact, literally it says that they were in the midst of a great test of affliction and hardship. They were being tested through great financial difficulty. Uh, We know that that region was an area that had one time been extremely wealthy because of gold and silver mines. And the people in Philippi and Berea, Thessalonica, those areas, had been very wealthy. But the Romans came in, they conquered, they took it over, and they decided that the the Roman government actually owned those silver mines. And they went and took all the gold and silver because they said it belonged to them. So imagine this. Here's this group of people who had known affluence, who had had banks full of gold and silver, had, you know, this great gold mine in their backyard. They ran out. They just went and dug a bit and came out. Wouldn't that be great to have that in your backyard? I would love that. Just this kind of never-ending flow of gold. They had that. And then all of a sudden, this big bully comes up and says, oh, by the way, it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to me. Hand it all over. And they found themselves instantly in deep, severe poverty. In fact, the word that's used there is not just a little poor. They were destitute. They were at a point of poverty where they were struggling to, to, to buy food. Okay? They were at the very bottom. In fact, later he talks about the depth of their poverty. The word there has the idea that they were at rock bottom. They, were, they couldn't sink any lower because they were in such straits of poverty. Uh, and yet these people gave generously. Um, Paul talks about the test of their affliction. And uh, if we're going to be examples, if we're going to teach about giving, 
we've got to understand what the test of affliction is. Um, and this is where George Miller can help us. As crazy as he was, uh, he deliberately chose a life of faith. And uh, the reality is that all of us, um, you know, we talk about faith. We talk about wanting to live by faith. Does everybody here want to live by faith? Raise your hand. Does anybody here not want to live by faith? Well, I don't really want to live by faith, but I'm kind of stuck with it. Um, and the reality is that for all of us, we live in a time and an age when we can build a safety net around our life that makes faith really uh, not essential. Okay? Uh, if, especially those of us who come from the West, who come from affluent countries, trusting in God is not really a necessity for our daily provision. Uh, we, have, we have the capacity to accumulate enough wealth in our life that we can build a safety net around our life that, that says we don't really need to trust in God. We can have savings accounts, we can have retirement plans, we can have insurance, we can have life insurance, we can have you know, 501Ks, 50, I don't have one of them, so I don't know what it's called. 501Ks, uh, we can have all these protections uh, if we run out of money, we have credit cards and we can get more credit cards. All the time they're sending me. I'm gonna have, I have lots of credit cards and they're all pretty much full and they still send me more. And they say, just, just all you need, it's just here. So that we can live life in a way that is protected from, from the trial of affliction, the test of hardship. What does it mean to put yourself in that place? What would it really mean to live by faith? Well, George Muller decided to try this out. And he determined in his life that he was going to live his life in soul and total dependence upon God. So he and his wife talked about this and they decided to sell everything they own. They sold their house. They sold every single piece of furniture. And they decided from today on, we are only going to take what God gives us. In other words, they stripped out of their life all the safety nets. They emptied their bank account, they emptied their savings, and they said, from today on, we are going to not fall back on any of those safety nets. Instead, we are going to come up with a whole different safety net, and it's called God. And we are going to put our life totally in his hands and trust him. Now, how many of us would be willing to do that? And we're going, okay, I don't think that's in the Bible. You know, I think he did that. I think he was confused. Okay, I don't think that's in the Bible. Well, breathe, breathe. Take a deep breath. Okay, you probably don't have to do that. And it's, it's not a sin to have a savings account or have a retirement plan. It may be very wise to have health insurance. Um, those things are okay. Unless they are a safety net, that, safety net that has become a substitute for God. Are you willing to put yourself out on a place where... You would say, God, if you took everything out of my life and put me in the worst kind of affliction, it would be okay because I know that you would take care of me. Would you live in that place? If God calls you to, to give away this month's paycheck, say, you know, I don't think you need your paycheck this month. I want you to see if you can really trust me. Would you be able to, in obedience, do that? Okay, the Macedonians had to make those kind of sacrifices to give generously. They had to, beginning at the month with their little pittance of money, say, you know, I've got enough money to live three days out of the 30. Okay? But you know what? We, we, we are so eager to, to trust God, and we're so excited about living by faith. We're going to give all three days of our income away, and we're not going to trust God just for the 27 days, but we're going to trust God for all 30. And in some ways, it's easier to do that when you're poor. It's easier to do that when you have to trust God for 27 days already. What's three more? Right? Sometimes it's hard when the reality is we don't have to trust God for any days. And we're unwilling to trust Him for one, much less 30. And, and Paul says that's really, that's really why they were such a great example in giving, is that they had stripped away their earthly safety net and replaced it with one that was much more secure. Uh, I encourage you, really, it's, it's good reading to read one of George Miller's biographies. Because he put himself in this place and there were times when it was very difficult. But he writes this, he says, you know, I have come to discover and know, know confidently 
that God is going to take care of me every single day. God has never yet, and, and he did this, he practiced this for over 40 years, trusting not only for his own provision, but for the provision of thousands of orphans. And he said, God has never once failed us. He says, every single day we have sat down to the table and we have had food. Every single day for all those 40 years, thousands of orphans sat down to the table and I think on only two occasions they had to postpone dinner by 30 minutes because they, you know, they had to wait 30 extra minutes and God provided. But every day God provided. But what he said is this. When I put myself in that place where I could trust nothing else but God, he said, what I found is my faith grew by leaps and bounds because I saw God providing step by step, moment by moment in my life. The reason the Macedonians could give is because they knew how to trust God. And they learned that through the testing of affliction. The reality is, as long as we hold on to these other safety nets, we don't need to trust God and we don't learn what faith is about. And so, you know, it's covered, every day is covered. Paychecks come in, it's, it's always covered. We never put in ourselves, we never allow ourselves to get to the edge. Living life of faith really is living on the edge of the cliff. It is, it is removing all the safety nets, all the buffer zones, and walking right on the edge of the cliff. And the reality is, sometimes you step off the cliff. And when you do that, uh, you've got to know that God's safety net will hold you. And it will. Do you believe God's safety net will hold you? Do you believe that? Yes? No? You're not looking very confident. <laughs> Uh, it is scary. It is scary. But the beginning of true giving is, is to go to that place. We need to teach people who support us, who are in our home churches, people we work with, we need to teach them what the life of faith is about. The reality is the, the average American, the average person in the West, cannot imagine what it would look like to strip away that safety net. And it doesn't mean they have to sell their home, you know, empty their bank accounts, uh, but it does mean they need to realize that, that it is God's plan for all of us to trust him alone for everything and to hold all the rest of it very loosely. We need to teach people that so that they will um, they'll be willing to let go of that safety net and, and give generously as God calls them. That's the work of God's grace in their life. When God's grace has so filled us that we know, you know, God loves me. He died for me. He saved my sin. He would not let me come to harm. And I don't have to worry about it. Well, how do you teach people that? Well, you can preach at them. You can talk to them. You can uh, share passages like this. But there is, no, there, there is no teacher like the life of example. Uh, Paul put before them the example of the Macedonians. He could have talked about this. He could have argued it theologically. But instead, what does Paul do? He says, look at these people who are really doing this. Here are these people, your neighbors to the north, you know these people. They are destitute in poverty. And God is testing their faith daily. And they are learning to rely on God's provision in their life. And they have become generous givers, even though they of all people shouldn't, shouldn't have any resources to give. Because they're learning to walk by faith. I think we need to fill our prayer letters and support letters and our, our, our information back home with stories and examples of our own life of how we are being tested and surviving the walk of faith. We've got to be very careful. We don't do it. You know, the, the reality is people already think we're weird and we're odd and that we're crazy because we've left that safety net and come here in the first place. We've got to be careful that we do it in a way that doesn't exaggerate uh, how bizarre we are. Okay? We've got to do it in a way that says, this is the normal Christian life. This is what God calls every person to walk in, a life of faith. And that God will bring testing and adversity in your life so that you will learn to trust him. Maybe he does it in your life through finances. Maybe he does it through health problems. Maybe he does it through other worries. But God brings a affliction and adversity into your life to teach you faith. And we need to be examples of showing our confidence 
that in the midst of great need and impossible situations, we trust God. And we are confident in God's provision, not in man's. That we don't look to people as our ultimate resource or organizations or our home churches, that ultimately we put our confidence that God is the one who will provide. People need to sense and see that example lived out in us. Um, Okay, enough on that one. Faith, the test of faith. Um, I think we also need to encourage people to let go of their safety nets. Uh, And I think this is a matter sometimes that we have to do through hard-earned prayer. Uh, The reality is that there is incredible wealth in the West. Uh, The statistics, I believe, something like 80% of the wealth of the Christian world is in the United States. Okay, I'm probably the other probably 19% is in the rest of, of the Western world. Okay, tremendous wealth there. But here's the reality. I had a guy in my church, very successful businessman, uh, had, had retired, got a good pension, had taken that pension and studied the stock market and turned a couple hundred thousand dollar pension into well over a million. He was the stingiest guy I ever saw in my life. He would never give anything. And I asked him, I said, you got all this money, you got tons of money in the bank, what are you hanging it on to it for? He goes, what's my security? I, you know, I need this for the future. And I'm going, man, you're 65 years old. You're going to die. You, know, you can't spend all this money in your lifetime. You know, it's not a good safety net. And the reality is we need to help people understand that it is a very insecure safety net. This guy had it all in the stock market. You know, what happens if that fails? Uh, what happens if the bot drops to 20? You know, if you're trusting in money, if you're trusting in these safety nets, they are very fragile. We need to help people see that they're trusting, when they put their trust in the world, it is not solid. It is not secure. God is the only one who's faithful and able to meet every need. We need to teach people that and help them see it in their own way. Um, We need to find examples in our ministry of people around us, not only from our own life, but people around us who live and model this. I was very encouraged. We were up in, I think, I believe it was one of the Lahu villages. I don't actually remember where it was now, but uh, poor rural pastors grow rice, live just on enough to, to, to survive month by month. And these guys had committed to giving 20% of their income uh, to, to God. You know, did you know that in the United, and again, these statistics come from the United States, it may be better other places, I doubt it. In the United States, do you know what percentage of Christians, evangelical Christians, give 10% of their income to, to, to God or to the church? Less than 5%. Less than 5% of Christians, of evangelical believers, give at least 10% of their, of their income to God. Uh, they say that the average uh, giving among church people is something like 2.6%. Here's people who have nothing, who are growing just barely enough rice to live on, who are committing to give 20%. People need to hear those kind of stories, and they need to see examples of what it means to trust God and give generously. Secondly, uh, so the first thing, they they were being tested in their faith. Secondly, he says that they they had this overflow or abounding joy is that they were people who were abounding in joy. Uh, Now, you may ask, what were these people happy about? You know, they had been wealthy. The Romans came and took all their wealth and said it was theirs. They now are poor. They're scraping, eking out a living. Uh, There's no good hope on on the horizon for them. And yet these were people who were joyful, happy people. And they gave out of the abundance of their joy, it says. Well, what is that all about? Well, I think it's clear that these were people who had discovered the true source of joy in Jesus Christ. They had discovered that a life of joy is found in a relationship with God, not in material possessions. Uh, The reality is that in the world that most of us come from, people honestly believe that they can make themselves happy and find joy through things. Uh, One of the reasons people don't give 10%, one of the reasons that 
the average Christian gives only two point whatever percent, is because there's, they've invested too much of their money in toys to make them happy. They honestly believe that if they were to give generously, it would cut into their clothing allowance and their eating out allowance and their going to the movie allowance and they might have to sell the jet ski and the boat. You know, and I live I'm in my former church. This was my former church. You know, everybody had about 15 toys. They had to build b- garages the size of this sanctuary to park all their toys in. You know? And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with having nice things. There's nothing wrong with going fishing with the boat you know, or water skiing or whatever. But the reality is too many people are, are far too unwilling to sacrifice those things because they don't understand that happiness is not in those things. Happiness is in giving of ourselves and our lives to God and walking in a relationship with Him. They don't understand the true source of joy. And they're too busy protecting not only their security net, but what they ultimately believe is their source of happiness and joy in their life. Uh, They want to travel, they want nice things, they want nice cars, they want nice houses. We've become so consumed with material possessions. Why? Well, because we believe that uh, we have a right to comfort, we have a right to these things, and that these blessings are our due and are our source of happiness. We're happy because God has blessed us with material things. And we don't understand that there is no happiness in those things. We can enjoy those things. Uh, we can certainly have fun. We can have a comfortable life. But true happiness and joy does not come from those things. It comes only through Jesus Christ. It comes only through our relationship with Him. Uh, the Macedonians, as said, were abounding in joy. Joy was overflowing out of their life because they had this walk with God that was real and deep and dynamic. And it was the source of their generosity. Uh, he goes on and he says that, um, that in the midst of this great trial of affliction, they overflowed, there was this overflowing joy and this great depth of poverty and that these two streams came together in an outpouring of generosity. Now, here, here's a really confusing one. If joy is confusing. That's the second thing. They, they, they were in the test of faith. Secondly, they were overflowing with joy. But thirdly, it says it comes out of their depth of poverty. Their great depth of poverty. Um, Paul says that a lot of their generosity was, was due to their poverty. That seems like, you know, Paul was really confused on this point. You know, rich people are generous. Poor people can't afford to be generous. What does he mean by that? Well, the reality is, and it's actually borne out statistically, that poor people, percentage-wise, are much better givers than rich people. They don't give more money, but percentage-wise, they give more. Well, why is that? Well, I think it's simply because they know what it's like to be poor. They can identify with the needs of those who have needs because they know the pain and agony of it. They know the frustration of it. They know the hurt of it. Uh, They were generous in their giving because they themselves understood what it was like to be in great need. And they knew the pain and suffering and struggle of hardship, and it gave them an attitude, a heart, that made them generous in their giving. Uh, here's a good prayer request. Let's start praying for poverty upon all of our supporters. <laughs> Maybe not. Uh, there is something, though, to be learned from coming to a place of need in our life. Uh, it's interesting when you study this whole idea about poor in the Old Testament, and it's a big theme in the Old Testament. Supporting the poor, helping the needy is a huge theme in the Old Testament. Uh, and at one point, uh, there was this doctrine basically formulated and it became a very religious, it had religious significance and it kind of went like this. People recognized that the poor uh, understood their need for God in a way that most people don't. And uh, in time it began to evolve so that when we talked about poverty in the Old Testament, it didn't simply mean those who were broke or who were beggars on the street, but it really came to symbolize and represent all of those who recognize their great need for God. 
Uh, and that's why in, in, when Jesus came along in the Beatitudes, you could talk about, blessed are the poor, for they shall inherit the kingdom. And Jesus wasn't talking that we had to become all financially poor, but he was saying this, that all of us need to come to a place of recognizing our poverty before God, that we are in desperate need of God in every area of our life. Um, Paul says, and, and I think we can, we can expand this, that you know, we don't want to pray poverty on our people. We don't want to uh, pray that God brings them to a place of bankruptcy so they'll give more. But we do need to help people come to groups with their own need for God in their life. The reality is we need to, to trust solely upon God and realize that before God we are desperately needy. Uh, I believe that people in the West are needy perhaps in ways far deeper and far more significant than in, in, the, in the countries like India or China. Maybe not materially, but in other ways. In deeper and more significant ways, we have needs we don't even admit or confess to. We think we have the answers, we think we have the solutions, we think we have the technology, we think we have the money. And we become like the people that John talks about in Revelations. You think, in fact, let me read it. <laughs> Revelation 3. Um, I say, you say I am rich and have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy from me gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. I think we need to pe help people understand, again by example, that we all are people who have need. The more people become aware of their own desperate need for God in their own life, the more they will identify with others in the world who have needs. How do we do that? Well, again, we do it through our own example by being honest about our own neediness. And again, I don't mean we write in every newsletter how we're starving to death and how our car's broken down and you know, we had to sell three of our children. And, uh, you know, but I'm talking about honesty about our own need for God. You know, are we willing to be honest that you know, we're missionaries, we're doing this great service for God? We're not superheroes. We have very real needs in our life. We have things that we don't always do so well. We have things that we struggle with. We have things in our life that we wrestle with. That we don't have it all figured out. And the reality is we need God every day to help us in these areas of weakness in our life. Are we transparent and vulnerable about our neediness? Or do we come off as superhuman, uh, people who walk on water, who have come to save the world? That's a good thing God has us. We need to be honest about our need. Paul says that these, these three streams flow together. They're testing of their faith, their overflowing of joy, and their sense of great need, the great poverty in their life, to create and produce in them an overflowing generosity. Uh, they were great grace givers. And in fact, he talks again, he uses the word grace, that they had great grace, generosity, as they gave. Uh, this is a strange formula for what it means to be generous, but here it is. Here's my formula for being a generous person. God's grace plus the test of faith multiplied by joy, by joy over poverty squared. You got that? It's a mathematical equation. You can go home and work it out. It works. Okay? Say it again. God's grace plus the test of faith multiplied by joy over poverty squared equals a generous giver. All right? Uh, I'm not sure about the math because I really don't know anything about math. I don't even know what any of those things mean. It just sounded cool. Um, the bottom line is if God's grace is at work in us, if we are people who have tasted and experienced the grace of God, it should be evident in a life that is generous. Generous with our time, generous with our resources, generous with ourself, generous with our money. We, as people who have been touched by God's grace, ought to be the most generous people in the world. Um, we ought to be overflowing with a desire and hunger to give at every turn. Our life should be characterized by generosity, and that was the life of the Macedonians. They were very generous people. 
Um, are we generous people? Uh, you know, and I don't know, thankfully I don't know what anybody here gives. I know if we take all the families that are here and we divide it by the average monthly uh, offering, I know what the average household gift is, but that's all I know. For all I know, one person could be given the whole thing and everybody else is giving nothing. I don't know. And I'm glad I don't know. But God knows our hearts. And it's not about percentages. And we'll talk about this more a little bit next week. God is not so concerned that we meet some quota and check off some percentage list. Uh, what God is after is people who have a generous heart. And that generous heart goes beyond just money. It's a, it's a personality, it's a lifestyle, it's a, it's a way of living life generously. Uh, here's just a couple of questions to ask. You know, those of us who, who live by the generosity of others, how well would we fare if those who support us were as generous as we are? Would, our, would things get worse for us or would things get better? Okay, if, if our generosity were, were the model. Um, are we willing givers? You know, we are people, if we're here on living by support especially, but really all of us, whether we think we have a job that pays us or we work for some organization that gives us a salary, the truth is we all live by the goodness and generous grace of God. Uh, God is our provider. He has promised to care for us. If we lose our job tomorrow, if they fire us, if our organization goes bankrupt, God is still there. God is still going to be the same generous, gracious God who's taking care of us and in whom we must trust. Are we equally those kind of people who are generous, free and willing to be gracious toward all that we have, towards those around us? And I'm not saying there shouldn't be wisdom with this. I'm not saying we give things away foolishly, and we'll look next week at some, um, some, some wise ways to give. And there's good ways to give, there's foolish ways to give. We can waste our money. God doesn't cause us to just throw our money away. But what God and what Paul was concerned about with the Corinthians wasn't the money, it wasn't percentages. What he was concerned about was that they had generous hearts, that they were eager to give, that they were begging, please, please let us be a part of this project because they had spirits that were generous. That's what God's looking for. The reality is you could give 30, 40, 50% of your income and still be stingy. Still be a person who's really at the bottom, not generous. And you see, the work of God's grace in our life is that it produces in us faith, it produces in us joy, and it ultimately produces in us generosity. Um, let's pray. Lord God, we uh, come before you uh, and we want to be people who are examples of this in our own life. And so we ask, Father, that by your grace you would do this kind of work in our life. That you would move in us uh, and move in our hearts in a way that we would grow in faith. Lord, help us to be generous because we're confident that no matter how much we give away, you will still provide. You will still take care of us. No matter how much we even sacrifice, you can pay it back and you will provide and you will meet every need as you have promised. Lord, I ask that you would do, you would do that work in us. Make us people who walk truly by faith. And Father, I pray that you would, by your grace, produce in us an abundance of joy not in circumstances, not in things, not in our possessions, but a joy that is found in the deep and abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, from our walk of worship and fellowship with you, Lord, that we would be joyful people who give joyfully. And lastly, Father, I pray that you would, you would make us generous people, that you would help us understand our own need and how you graciously and generously met that need through Jesus Christ. Uh, that though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor, 
that through his poverty we might become rich. Lord God, help us to understand that it is your generosity that sent Christ to the cross. And that uh, if we are to be Christ-like, it will be evident in our own generous lifestyle. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would provide abundantly for every person here. And as they labor to raise money and share their burden and their vision for ministry, that you would help us to move and motivate and encourage people in our home countries to be generous partners in ministry. We ask this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.